Hello, humans. This is the first podcast of Isolated Together. It's a podcast about our struggles and our triumphs against COVID-19. I'm the host, David DeRoche. It's a production of the Quinnipiac University podcast studio, which I'm the director of. And these days I'm running it out of my future in-laws home in Florida. So first, uh, quickly, what the podcast is about. There is an insane amount of information out there about um, this pandemic. And some good, some bad, Uh, some things change, some things stay the same. Some people are politicizing it. And for honest, both sides are doing that. People are getting sick, people are dying, the economy's in tatters, what are we gonna do? Now, I, I know that sounds like very doom and gloom, but let me just say that this podcast is not that. We wanna do something a little different. We wanna tell all kinds of stories. We even wanna find some humor in this if we can. You know, my grandmother used to say that humor was the glue that kept our marriage together and maybe humor is the thing that can keep society together. So let's laugh together, maybe cry together. Uh, let's figure out how to get past this together. Uh, we are isolated together. Uh, for those of you on the front lines, uh, healthcare workers, physicians, emergency medical techs, grocery store workers, delivery drivers, that isolation can be maddening, I can imagine, because you're interacting with people all the time. Being so close to people and so far away has to take its toll. So I wanted to do something a little bit different. Maybe we can laugh a little while also talking about the big stuff. We're gonna get through this, but it's gonna take some time. We got two great guests. Epidemiologist Erica Fowler is joining us and Laura Willis is a professor of health and strategic communications at Quinnipiac University. She's also gonna be joining us. We got a lot to talk about before we get to it. Um, And I know I've been rambling a lot already, but I just wanna get something off my chest, which is sort of why I wanted to do this podcast does give people an opportunity to get things off their chest. The word of the day or the word of the year for me is confusion. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to feel. I don't know how to react. Everything's new and everything's different. In one month, in a single month, everything's changed. I was supposed to be getting married on April 4th. That's not happening. I was supposed to be going to a honeymoon in Panama. That's not happening. You know, as I sit here complaining about life, about being inside, about being bored, about not being able to do anything, about watching every Netflix show there is, I'm racked with this weird sort of survivor's guilt because I have really nothing to complain about ultimately. So as of today, as of recording this, we're doing this Thursday, April 2nd, over a million confirmed cases worldwide, 55,000 deaths in the United States, over 250,000 cases, 5,000 deaths, and all the families of every single person who has been infected by coronavirus, every single one of those families has been impacted. Um, so the numbers keep continuing to grow, and it's just devastating. I think about what it is for people who are uh, on the front lines working, or the six million people who have applied for employment now. That's a record by far. Last week was three million. That was a record. And so I'm really confused about complaining about anything. You know, like I, I watched a delivery driver drive by, and he had a mask on. And then I saw, you know, dog groomers coming to somebody's house. And on the one hand, I'm like, well, it's great that they're working. On the other hand, I'm like, dog grooming, really? And and this? So I I just really have no idea what to feel, how to feel, how to react, to respond to anything. And every time I I feel bad or guilt or or, or, uh, like my life is hard, I feel guilty immediately. So maybe we should have had a psychiatrist on the show (laughs) instead of Laura and Erica. But I don't know. What are you guys thinking? Laura, I'll turn to you. Tell me what, what's going on with you. How are you feeling? And, and are you experiencing the same kind of confusion? Yeah, thanks, David. 
I'm feeling okay today. I would say that right now everyone should be taking it day by day, maybe hour by hour. Uh, those who are working at home with kiddos, maybe it's every 10 minutes or so you check in with yourself as you try to get things done. I totally hear you in terms of, you know, a little bit of discomfort around, is this something worth complaining about? Like my position here, uh, I'm so lucky to be able to be, to be with you today with the technology that I have available in my home, uh, still have an, an income coming in, you know, um, and looking at a wide variety of experiences that my friends are having that I get a window into through social media and being able to engage in some social comparison, both upward and downward and evaluate myself based off of them. Um, you know, earlier today, I saw an article from The Reductress, which is a feminist satire uh, website that said uh, something like, yeah, it's like being in prison, says woman eating yogurt from her bed. Right. Uh, right? So this idea of constantly feeling uh, an awareness of how the current situation is impacting ourselves, and then wanting to snap into also recognizing about me and what I'm experiencing is... Um, not comparable in many ways. I, I am wildly experiencing so many um, intersections of privilege and I'm still feeling frustrated in feeling isolated and disconnected. And um, that's difficult. You know, I'm supposed to be in a classroom three days a week connecting with my students and having that component of the educational experience taken from me is it is difficult. Like I want to be in a classroom, you know, and so being at home and trying to connect via Zoom is just not the same. And the asynchronous learning is not what the students signed up for. So it, I hear you. <laughs> it's a difficult struggle. Um, I, I would say to anybody who's feeling down on themselves for feeling down about it, like that's, it's okay to not be okay right now. This is not a normal time. And, you know, um, we're not, working from home we're at home during a public health crisis trying to get work done and those are two very different experiences and so it's important to try to be um as focused on what is actually true and it's not true that we're all just like enjoying some time away from the office that's not true of anyone you know and i think you made some really good points um you know not we're not working from home we're at home trying to get work done i think that's a really interesting important distinction to make and, and yeah, and, and validating, you know, feeling the way we do while also recognizing that we're all sort of learning how to deal with, with, with this thing. Um, and that's sort of, I guess, why I wanted to do this, this podcast. Erica, what about you? How do you feel about, you know, just your position? Are you still able to do work or um, like what, what, what's going on? Yeah, so I, I think that, Laura, you really did eloquently sum up how a lot of us are feeling right now. I have worked from home. Well, I've, I've traveled a lot typically for work and, and also worked from home a lot. So the travel isn't there, which is a nice break um, a little bit, but maintaining, you know, your kind of standard of, of work is very difficult right now with all of the things going on. And, and it is, it's almost like, I don't really care about, like, I'm so grateful to have a job, so I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but it's like there are so many bigger issues going on right now versus what I typically deal with on a daily basis in my work, and, you know, my industry is work for a biopharmaceutical commercialization industry, so we are having to change a lot of things based on the isolation 
that needs to be put in place. So there, there's a lot going on, but it feels so insignificant to the challenges that are being faced on the front lines that it makes it really hard for me to, to really focus all day and, and get as much done as I need to do because I'm so worried about so many other different things. So um, I really like the way that you put that. We're not working from home. We're trying to get work done in the middle of a public health crisis. That really is a great way to, to say it. And David, I think that you said earlier that your the word of the year for you is confusion. I Before all of this happened, I really um, had a, a mindset of, like my my word for this year was mindfulness and working on myself and um, like kind of coming to an inner peace. And this has been a very important uh, bump in the road for that because uh, I, I'm, I'm focusing on myself and then I'm so grateful for everything that I'm experiencing that my life hasn't changed very much yet. Um, but I'm also seeing all of the ways that other people's lives have changed and I'm wondering much like you, like, what is this going to look like in a few months? Like, what is this, like, it's not going to look like it did before, probably. Um, what are the good things that can come of that? Um, how can we adjust to that? So all of these things are kind of spinning around in my mind all the time as I'm also trying to get my like daily responsibilities done. Yeah, and it's, it's such an incredible sort of like psychological journey. I feel like a lot of us are going on, uh, no matter where you are uh, and what you're experiencing, just sort of having to, to negotiate our new reality and to your point, trying to see some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, some sort of optimism. Like, you know, I know a lot of people post things like how the oceans, um, like, like dolphins are coming back into certain areas. And so they're, you know, because people are not there anymore. So, you know, in some ways the earth is healing a little bit. So there, you know, there are some, maybe some positive things that we can pull away from this, but it's challenging when you turn on the news and you see this reality, this, uh, this, it's affecting, every corner of the planet, not just the United States, you know, how do you stay optimistic? But I think that's critical. I mean, if we're going to survive as a society, I mean, we gotta, right. We can't just all like throw our hands up and say, all right, that's it. You know, and then just all focus on our individual selves. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. So I, I'm glad you guys were, were uh, shared that your, your sort of personal experience with me, because I feel like, you know, when we turn on the news, we are getting, and one thing that drives me sort of crazy as, you know, I was a journalist for 10 years and um, I see these journalists making mistakes that they make in breaking news situations, um, which, you know, usually like if there's a live shooter situation at, at, you know, at a school or something, you expect there to be some, some mistakes in reporting. That's just how breaking news is. And, you know, over time they correct those errors. But what seems to happen, at least in, in the media that I've been consuming, um, is that those errors don't go uh, fixed because things are changing so constantly that they can't go back and say, oh, we got this thing wrong because things have changed so much. And so there's this constant barrage of information. A lot of it ends up being false or, or changes over time because this, what we know changes. There's so many different things to consider as journalists are trying to cover this. And I feel for my journalist co uh, colleagues as they're trying to, to, to navigate this, but what ends up happening is we have a, you know, a population that's really confused, um, that is getting different messages from different media outlets, um, and even within media outlets that generally do a good job, they're, they're, it's hard for them to stay on top of their mistakes, and it's hard for them to, 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 uh, to adjust to the facts as the facts change. So I, I, I personally have just been really, not necessarily disappointed, but concerned about how we understand 
this thing. And as I'm talking, there's a guy mowing grass right outside my window. Thank goodness he has that job. Um, that's that's fantastic that he's working or not. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe it's better for him to collect unemployment. I, again, so weird. Anyway, back to the conversation. So, Eric, I want to turn to you. Uh, you know, as an epidemiologist watching this unfold, what are some things you think? Well, I guess I'll just ask you a basic sort of foundational question. What do we actually know definitively about this virus? Is it, do we really know anything definitively or is much of the things that we know, is those all, all those things that to change? What do you think? I think there are a few things that we can say that we know pretty definitively, not that things, you know, they will continue to change. We haven't been studying this virus for an extended amount of time. So some of the things that we do know, you know, will change. Um, also, as you mentioned, the, the numbers change daily anyway, and, and what we know changes daily. So one of the things that I, I like to say about the numbers that you're seeing in statistics in general is there's a quote that is falsely attributed to Mark Twain, but um, it came from somewhere before that, but it was, there's three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And statistics are lies by default, because if we knew the truth, we wouldn't need statistics. So when you're looking at any kind of numbers that come out of, of anywhere, so any journalism, any any numbers that you see, it's really important not to take them all to like as one thing, like look at a lot of different things that are that are happening. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the talk, looking at the qualitative evidence is really important because it gives you another layer of information to fold into the numbers that you're seeing. So what we do know is that hand washing helps and being socially isolated helps stop the spread of it. We do know that it spreads through the air, it spreads through respiratory droplets. There is ongoing research to determine how extensively it spreads. Um, for example, there, like if it's an aerosol where it can hang in the air for a couple, it can hang in there for a couple of hours, that's going to be a lot different than if it only transmits through someone sneezing on you. So there are a couple of different nuances with that. Also, we know that the virus can stay active on surfaces for an extended amount of time. So when you're touching surfaces, whether or not you have gloves on, um, if you then touch your face or touch your eyes, then you can contract the virus potentially that way. So um, we do know those things. So that's why we're consistently saying like, wash your hands for 20 seconds, at least with soap and water. Stay six feet apart from people. They're reevaluating whether or not um, asking people to wear masks is a good idea. It's probably not gonna help you stop from getting the virus because you know, if you have a mask on your eyes, you're still open and whatnot, but it could help you prevent spreading it. So they think that talking or breathing could even spread it if it's the, the aerosols. Um, so there's a lot of stuff emerging about that. So to your point, um, David, a, a few weeks ago, they were saying masks aren't going to help. It's not going to help. But, you know, in the next few days, it might come back that, well, yeah, everyone needs to wear a mask. So those are some of the things that we do know. We know that it is killing a lot of people and a lot of people are focusing on the death rate and saying, oh, well, the death rate's a lot lower than it was. It really they say because they're not testing people. Like it doesn't matter. A lot of people are dying from this that don't have to. And then a lot of people are getting very, very, very ill. Um, they may not die, but they are incredibly sick. They may not return to normal after this. They may have extensive damage to their lungs. They are taking up resources for the healthcare system. So the, and there aren't enough of those to go around. So all of those things can change the statistics or numbers that you're seeing, the mortality rate, the infection rate, the case rate, the um, how fast it's spreading, there are just a lot of different things that'll, that'll change that. 
So just for our listeners who um, might have uh, fallen asleep in science class uh, with the difference between qualitative and quantitative uh, measures, can you just maybe sort of break that down? You described the importance of sort of qualitative uh, measures and what that means. Yeah, so um, quantitative measures are, are numbers. So these are things that you measure. And as we've kind of discussed a little bit, those numbers are only as good as the measurements that are put in place. So I know, we're, like we said, we talk a lot about the testing because the testing isn't widely spread enough. We're not really seeing a full picture of what those quantitative numbers should be. Um, so it makes it hard to draw really definitive conclusions from anything. On the other side of the story, we have um, qualitative measurements. So these are more of the softer measurements and like the anecdotal, the stories that you hear people tell. So this is what it's like to be in an ER that's overrun with patients coming in for testing for coronavirus or that, you know, maybe they're maybe they're not that sick, but they just want to test and you're already, you're flooding the ERs, or there are really, really sick people flooding the ERs that do have it in an, an advanced stage, um, not having the right type of equipment to, you know, assist people on the front line, or the grocery store workers that are working, you know, long shifts where every day is like Black Friday or Thanksgiving. So um, those are the, the qualitative lenses that you can put on top of all the other things that you're seeing to really add color and depth to what's happening. I read this one article, I think it was in Stat News, where there's an epidemiologist sort of describing we're making a lot of decisions based on a lack of data. And and the, it was true, but I guess the, the point uh, on the other side is, well, it's it's very clear that this is lethal and um, that its infection rates is bad, it's high, and we're trying to collect data. And so do you wait to collect data before you make decisions, um, which doesn't seem very smart when you know that people are dying. So the collection of data happens, you know, at the same time as, as actions are being taken, um, which I think might confuse a lot of folks who might, you know, uh, especially those who watch Fox, Fox News, which has been really, you know, minimizing this, this pandemic. Um, they might be confused by that reality that we don't know a whole lot about it, but yet we're making these, taking these huge drastic measures uh, on top of that. Laura, I'm going to turn to you. So as a, uh, a professor of uh, strategic communications and health communications specifically, how do you think journalists have done in communicating these things that Eric is talking about? Sort of like, I think they probably do a decent job with some of the stuff. Um, maybe occasionally you get, you know, the anecdotes that, uh, you know, the, the qualitative stuff that Eric was talking about. Um, but as the, the, the quantitative stuff sort of changes constantly, that proves challenging for a lot of people reporting it. So just, you know, tell me what you think overall the job the media has done in, in talking about all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would say that for me, it highlights a couple of things. It, it really highlights the need and the value of well-educated, um, well-prepared actual science journalism, <laughs> you know, like having people who are trained in communicating about health and science, not just, okay, this is the, the story, so now I need to run with it and here we are and I'm learning as I go. It's better to have people who have some sort of background to uh, help to translate for the, the general public. Uh, it also highlights for me just the, the need for our public to have a higher level of scientific literacy, right? So I teach um, a research methods class for our undergraduate students regularly. And a concept that we talk about at the beginning of each semester is the idea of science as tentative knowledge and really coming to respect and understand that there is very little in this world that we know. That we regularly act as though we know things. 
um, but that we are always building off of the knowledge that has come before. And in order to do science well, you have to be willing to throw away what you thought was true <laughs> uh, as you get evidence that suggests it's not quite as factual as you may have been taught it to be. And so for me, it's really a call for all folks who are trying to communicate about these issues to be transparent about what is uncertain and the, the fact that it will change. And so I know that we have a desire to communicate about what is real, right? So that we give some people a sense of certainty, but certainty is not a net positive, right? Um, uncertainty is not a net negative. Uh, uncertainty should be treated as a neutral uh, and so that we can make decisions based off of what we know now and also uh, with a willingness to, to learn as more information comes. Uh, and that's difficult, you know, uh, psychologists for a long time treated uncertainty as a negative uh, and talked about how it, it without a doubt, uh, causes us to feel cognitive discomfort, that we just don't like it as humans, that we want to be certain. And then as more data was collected, you know, that had to be revised. And we went from talking about uncertainty reduction to uncertainty management and realizing that as humans, we are all individually receptive or negatively reacting to a level, a certain level of uncertainty. Some people prefer the uncertainty as opposed to getting the information and reducing it for themselves. And so, you know, even as we think about these concepts like, oh, well, this is something we don't know. This is what we're still trying to learn. If you take a step back, you realize, okay, well, 50 years ago, the way that we thought about the concept of uncertainty itself was different. Uh, and so it really just highlights for me, you know, that maybe one of the words that we should come to appreciate, maybe our new word of 2020 is uncertainty and feeling more comfortable with it and leaning into it. You know, I, I, I'm so glad you pointed that out because that that has been a, a criticism I've had generally of, of journalists for a very long time, but specifically in this case, to your point, and, and, it, and I don't know if it's driven subconsciously by journalists' own personal desire to have certainty that they then present things as being certain, which then, you know, puts into the mind of their readers that they know these things. And then, you know, when those things change, then confusion ensues. And uh, I've always tried to find the gray area in, in reporting, like finding the things that we don't know about. And because that's, I feel like that's where our critical thinking kicks in, where we, we're not sort of being fed what is, you know, one side and versus the other, is that we're sort of having to really analyze the situation and understand that, okay, this is kind of, we know this, but we really don't know that. And maybe that's okay that we don't know this thing. Again, yeah, it makes you feel uneasy to, especially in a case like this where life is, you know, completely turned upside down, not knowing is challenging because, you know, we, we crave that knowledge, right? But I think we need to come to a place where, hey, you know, we're getting there, we'll get there, it's going to take some time, it might take a lot longer than we, we expect or that we'd like, but being okay with that. And then there's almost like a, maybe sort of a Zen mindset that we need to sort of try to inhabit, you know, to sort of just allow the people who know what they're doing to figure out what they're what they're doing and and i just love the idea uh, i think i don't know if, you, if i'm phrasing this correctly you said, was it the science of tentative knowledge is that yeah science, science is, tentative, is knowledge. tentative knowledge yeah right i i love that because it's it shows that you know it's always going to be changing and, and to feel like you know something now and it's going to be true tomorrow um is is hubris and so i i you know uh, i wish journalists could do a better job at sort of 
describing that, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, just the public needs better science understanding. And journalists, I think, also need that better science understanding so they can communicate that to the public and the public actually understands what they're reading. Erica, what do you think about this? How, how have you seen news coverage about this, generally speaking? What's been your take? Generally speaking, I think that there are some journalists that I've seen do a really great job. There's some that have been, or like news outlets, like I read a lot of, I read a lot more articles than I do like watch news, but um, that have, have given some really great insights. I've seen some Vox articles that are really good. I generally like them. Um, but then I've also seen a lot of sensationalism and a lot of playing upon like people's fears and people, their fear and then their, their need for the certainty. So, and, and by that, I mean like downplaying it. So it's like, oh, this is gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. So I've seen a lot on, on both sides. So I, I am happy with some of it that I'm seeing. I think people are doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have in a lot of cases. But I think one of the things that this all brings to mind is like how this can help us be in the moment to be okay with that uncertainty. Like, you know, five days from now is uncertain, but like, what can I do right now in this moment? And how can I be present in this moment and enjoy it and, and take it for what it is rather than always be worrying about um, the things that we don't know. So I'm hoping that, you know, as this progresses, like, and changes our society and, you know, societies throughout the world, that we can really get back to being comfortable with that uncertainty, or not back to it, but to it, I guess, the worst one. Yeah, I think um, maybe it's a good time for everybody to read The Power of Now. Um, I would I would butcher the author's name <laughs> if I could pronounce it, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good point. Um, you know, uh, because what do what ultimate power do we have over tomorrow? None. And I think this event has has really driven that home, at least for me. You know, especially you know getting be planning a wedding for you know a year and a half, and then never imagining that in a million years that something would happen that would push that out. It's it's crazy. And so maybe that's a good thing because you know ultimately, and for all the planning we like to do as people. Maybe it's a good thing that, that we'll get out of this is that, you know, hey, really all that we're guaranteed is the moment that we're alive in this moment. So not to get all super philosophical, but uh, Laura, did you want to add? Yeah, I was going to say, like, while we are in this moment of appreciating that we are in an uncertain time, in an uncertain world where nothing is guaranteed, uh, I just also want to reiterate what Eric has said earlier, which is that there are some things that we do know about how to reduce our risk, right? So um, another key component of good coverage is going to highlight for the public what those best practices are for risk reduction and to update as best practices change, right? So hand washing cannot be discussed enough, in my opinion. Like we really need to train our folks how to hand wash in a way that you know, I wasn't taught to wash my hands for 20 seconds with this and this, the way that we're being taught now, you know, uh, and I, I'm hopeful that things like that may be uh, changing in terms of how we raise a new generation of hand washers, like really what is the value of hand washing moving forward? This could be a huge cultural shift for us in the way that I always looked at my grandparents freezing a bunch of food so that in case there wasn't food moving forward, well, they came from the depression where they weren't guaranteed. You know, this is a shift that could really change public health practices, which is one of the things that I am hopeful about comes out of all, all of um, what we're experiencing right now. Um, but then also in covering the best practices for risk reduction, I would ask journalists to be really careful uh, and honest about 
their acknowledgement that there are different access points to engaging in those risk behaviors. And just because you know someone who has a vacation home in the woods of Maine doesn't mean everybody has the ability to run away from the city, right? Most people who are in New York City right now aren't going anywhere, um, not just because they've been told they can't, but because they don't have another option, right? And we are really at a point where it is super visible, the differences in what is possible based on economic class, right? So if there is a call for best practices and then an acknowledgement that those best practices can't be practiced by everyone, then for me as a human, the next thing that has to happen is a drive for a call for change, right? Because we are all in this together, we are all protecting each other, um, and we don't have equal access to engage in the behaviors that would keep us as safe as possible as a nation and as a group of humans on this planet. So that's super fascinating. So I hadn't even thought about that. Like some of the best practices maybe even require privilege to be able to engage in. I I hadn't even really considered that. So I think what is interesting is as those processes or the practices change, like just today, my future mother-in-law is planning, you know, to cook a meal for everybody and she wants to do it like a Thanksgiving style. So she wanted to get a turkey. And, um, you know, we're having this huge argument over who's going to go to the grocery store. You know, we're like, no, we'll go. And they're, and they're, and, you know, her, her mom and dad are like, no, we're going to go. And it's like, you guys are older. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, we should go. And, and then we're having argument over best practices. Like, how do you open the, the refrigerator door, you know, to grab the frozen food? And I'm like, well, I open the door with my right hand and grab the food with the left. I'm wearing gloves. But it's like, all these things, to Erica's point, even if you are wearing gloves, you then grab the thing and then you end up touching yourself somewhere or your clothes and then it's there. To your point, Laura, how are people who, uh, let me just ask this question. I hadn't really thought about which ones um, like might be practices of privilege. Can you explain like what do you think are some things that people just can't do because of the nature of their socioeconomic position? Laura, do you want to take that? Yeah, I mean, I think a clear example is just like the number of folks who still need to take a subway in order to get to work in New York to Mm -hmm. make less than $15 an hour. You know, like we have a working class that is supporting the comfort of the middle and upper class because they don't have another option. Um, And for renters who are are protected, right, like there are protections in place for those of us who are lucky enough to have a mortgage, but the same things are not being asked of landlords to sort of pass that on and protect their renters. And so if you have rent coming due and you don't have anything in place to give you a a break for this month, you know, that $1,200 check isn't coming into your bank account tomorrow. So uh, there are pushes in the right direction to provide financial support. And um, that's great, but it's, it's insufficient to give us all equal footing. Uh, If this doesn't highlight the need for universal basic income and uh, healthcare for all, I don't know what will. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, and I was going to try to make a joke about hand washing and how it's, um, you know, drying the the hell out of my hands and there's no moisturizer on planet earth that can keep my hands moisturized at this point. But it's like, again, even you try to make light of these things and it's like, you know, what about people who try to go buy soap and the, the soap sold out or and the only soap that's left is like the $8 ridiculous soap and, you know, they can't afford it. So it's like trying to make jokes about any of this stuff is challenging. But I, I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm really, I'm really digging uh, hard to find out ways you can try to, to laugh at this stuff. I mean, I guess the things that are, that are maybe funny are the lack of toilet paper because 
toilet paper? Really, people? Like, of all the things to buy out, like, you don't need toilet paper. I mean, you know, most of the world doesn't even <laughs> use toilet paper. It's such an, like a Western thing, and, and it's just mind-boggling that that's the thing that we choose to hoard. I, I, I don't know. What about you guys? Is there any, Erica, is there anything funny or ridiculous that you've seen come out of all this? Yeah, the toilet paper thing has been pretty funny. I, I, one thing that I think has been helpful is that there are a lot of people trying to make light of this. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time on social media anyway, um, but I've, it's definitely been ramped up in the last few weeks. And I've appreciated, not all of them, but a lot of the memes that have been coming out and think people are trying we're using our like humanity and our and humor as a part of that to help each other through this. So that has been nice to see. And I feel like it's, you know, we're all coming together in that way. So yeah, the toilet paper thing, I, I really, I don't get that. I, that's baffling. <laughs> I don't understand. And, and mayonnaise too now, apparently people are hoarding mayonnaise. <laughs> like what, like I, well, I'm trying to like, see the best of humanity, and then I see these things happening. I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't. Do we deserve it? I don't know if we deserve any compassion for ourselves. I don't know. It's scary. So, with information changing constantly, or do you like Laura? Do you have advice like for? I mean, you kind of mentioned this before. Um, you know, being just just sort of more more aware of of science generally. But do you have like just sort of like maybe bullet point tips? for journalists that are trying to cover this, um, to things they can keep in mind as they're reporting this? And I guess a, a follow-up to that would be, you know, what are some things that, that you see commonly missed that sort of frustrate you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so taking it from just a health communication perspective, I'm, I'm not a trained journalist, but I would say that one of the main takeaways <laughs> for me when I was first working in health communication was the level of writing. In order to be clearly understood, you want to write everything at like a sixth grade reading level or below. And in a situation like this where truly people's lives are at stake, it's very important that what is written is understood, right? The heart of effective communication is not communicating eloquently, it's communicating for understanding. And so providing uh, not just the raw statistics, but translating those through a concept called social math, for example, can be super helpful. So social math is where you take a large number, something that might be difficult to imagine, and you relate it in a way, you break it down in a way where it becomes something much more uh, meaningful to the reader or the listener. So instead of thinking about, I don't know, 60,000 people, who let's say there's this is a statistic of 60,000 people trying to find a location where 60,000 people could fit in, right? Maybe that's a stadium in a capital city or something like that. Then people can imagine themselves inside that football stadium and look around and say, okay, everyone in the stadium, that's 60,000 people. That is a much more meaningful way of making numbers that can be very difficult for folks to understand clear and almost, um, touchable in a way. So that's another thing that I would say is the communication of any kind type that is, you know, has the implications of life or death at a level where everyone feels like they know what it is you're saying and they're not confused by the inclusion of jargon for the purposes of sounding intelligent, right? You want to speak at a level uh, in a way where you know that the folks that you're talking with and communicate back in a way that demonstrates that they understand you. 
Do you think there's been anybody in particular or any news organization that you've been following that you feel has done a pretty good job? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm super impressed with what's happening in Ohio. I'll let Erica maybe speak to Dr. But she's been doing a, a killer job of communicating the information. Also, I'm really impressed with Life Kit, the parenting version from NPR's podcast. And they've had a lot of great little segments, which they're thinking about how do you communicate this for your children? And that is, that's part of it, is if you can get a five or six-year-old to understand why hand-watching is so important, then, then that's the that's the communication. What do you think, Erica? Have you um, any particular news outlets that you've been impressed with? Do you think they've done a pretty good job? Yeah, I'll actually start with Ohio. Um, for example, the um, Governor DeWine, he appointed Dr. Amy Acton as the director of the Ohio Department of Health. And he was he did that because she has an MD and they hadn't had an MD in that position before and he thought it was really important. And he's actually, he's really, really taking her direction recommendations to heart. And that's one of the reasons I, I believe that Ohio is in such a good spot with the, um, with the pandemic. And they're holding um, briefings. They're having Dr. Acton explain things. She's a very calm person and she um, actually taught global health at Ohio State. So she has um, not only the MD background, but she has a, a background in instruction as well. So I think that's been really helpful at, at breaking this information down to a level that people can understand it because she really, really understands it at a, a much different level than most people do. Um, so I think that's been really helpful. I mentioned a couple of, um, I mentioned Vox earlier. I've read several articles for them from them that I really like. I think that they break it down pretty well and they have a, they seem to have maybe a left leaning, but pretty objective view of what's going on. And then I try to just read a variety of sources and, and then come up with my own opinions about the information across all of them. So that's one thing that I, I typically recommend people to do is if you disagree with something, at least try to understand it, maybe ask questions, um, I'll, you know, be kind and, and don't, you know, try to force your opinion on people. It typically doesn't work. But if you do disagree with someone, ask them why they believe that and maybe offer to, to share information from your side of the fence and and see if you can maybe um, educate each other on, on something. So in terms of communication in general, those are things that I would recommend. But yes, I think a, an example of a, a good practice is the Ohio case, and then, then just kind of taking all the information for yourself, parsing it out, and coming up with your own conclusions about what you're seeing. Yeah, and I think that's probably good advice um, for reading any sort of information, right? Especially, you know, when we're talking about something that is, you know, a life or death situation you know, taking things with a grain of salt, asking questions, getting uh, your information from first sources, I think is probably good advice for, for any uh, news story. Well, as you were, as you were talking, it, it reminded me when uh, I used to teach, when I was at Connecticut Public Radio, the NPR affiliate in Hartford, I used to teach at a high school there, journalism and media literacy. And one of the things I would drive home is that, uh, is the need to, you know, get your news from diverse sources. But one of the things that became very clear was that, those students, a lot of the students that I had um, were working. You know, they, they're in school all day. They go to work uh, after school. They come home, and, you th and do you think that they have the time to read, you know, different news sources, analyze them, come to, the, to, to their own conclusion? And I, the whole idea of, of being able to do that became an idea of privilege. And then I, I was like, well, then that means the burden is really on the news sources to do that for them. And I really don't see news sources, generally speaking, 
going out of their way to, to try to play devil's advocate, which is sort of what we should be doing often, um, to really ask hard questions, to, or to be okay saying that we don't know this thing and that maybe we'll know it one day, maybe we won't. And, but we have to sort of be okay with that. And so I imagine for a lot of folks that just don't even have the ability uh, to read news sources because either they don't have the time, you know, so the burden becomes on, becomes on the media. And I know a lot of folks, uh, working class folks, will only be able to get it, you know, on TV uh, if they have a cable subscription. So they might just be getting it through um, network news. And I, from most of the TV news that I've been watching, um, I usually don't, but, you know, the household I'm in, they, they watch TV news. And so it's on, the TV's on. And I'm watching it and I'm just like kind of blown away by how just sensationalized it is. Um, yeah, it's a bad, it's a big story and it's a problem, but they lead with just, you know, the, these really horrific stories with the numbers of deaths and, and granted, these things are important to talk about. I'm not minimizing these at all, but I, I wish they would tell us more about what people are doing, right? What we, how people are handling this, what is the delivery driver do, dealing with? Like, is that person really okay having to deliver packages to people's houses constantly? I wish there was more of a balance. I wish that, you know, there was, it was not so much doom and gloom. And I wish it was more, you know, working together to try to figure this, this, this stuff out. Laura, did you have something you want to add? Yeah, well, I was, as an aside, I'll say I think the devil has enough advocates. Um, so I'm not looking to my news for that necessarily. But I would say that uh, one thing that we also know is that a lot of folks, uh, actually access their news through mobile now. So whether that is um, through news sites um, or news organizations, social media sites, or um, through uh, their their websites, whatever, that's another source. And it's a large, uh, a primary channel for folks that maybe that's their only access to the internet is their phone, right? So it's also important to be thinking about if you are getting a lot of your news through your social media accounts, what is the, um, you are choosing to curate because you are choosing to follow different organizations, different individuals. And um, so being conscious about that curation of your resources. And like, if you are getting a lot of your information through, for example, social media accounts, uh, just wanting to remind individuals that they are empowered to create a diverse channel. Uh, just like I would suggest that you have a diversity of colors on your plate and when you sit down to a meal, if you can manage that, then you should also have a diversity of news sources coming to you because you are the curator of that space. You choose who you follow and who you listen to and who you mute. Um, so it doesn't have to be a place that is causing you um, discomfort or anxiety. If you're only hearing one type of story, then maybe start following other individuals and maybe muting some of the, those that are hitting you over the head with the same version of the story time and time again. And, you know, one thing I also noticed from students is that they are getting their news from social media. That's literally the only place they're getting it is from Facebook and Instagram uh, and Twitter. And, you know, <laughs> that was really disheartening because as we know, those social media channels are littered with misinformation and disinformation. Um, not that it's all bad, but it happens so fast and that stuff spreads like wildfire um, because, you know, the echo chamber sort of reinforces itself. And the more we interact with, with certain stories, the more those kinds of stories we're going to be fed. And so, yeah, to your point, really being careful about what we like on social media, what we share on social media, making sure that that's from a reputable news source that um, 
uh, that is providing news with facts that have attribution. A lot of times people don't read something they think is factual, but they don't know where those facts came from because there's no, there is no attribution. So I encourage listeners to, if somebody tells you something, demand how that person knows the thing that they know. Is it coming from an official source or is it coming from Fred next door? You know, um, you know attribution matters. Lord or Erica, do you uh, have anything you wanted to, to add in terms of this, like that media diet? I know you already mentioned that a little bit, but anything else you want to talk about? I, I wanted to kind of, this is another, the privilege that not everyone has, but I, so for example, I am, my hometown is very, it's in East Texas. It's very rural. It's very much, um, you know, pretty conservative, very conservative. They definitely have different views on most things than I do. I'm including the pandemic, but because they trust me, a lot of the people, you know, from my hometown, I'm friends with them on Facebook. They trust me and they, they know that I have studied this and they are actually willing to listen to me and ask me questions. So they sometimes filter some of the news sources through me. So my friends are family. So it's, it's a small group of people, but it's um, something that I've encouraged them all to do. And I, as a um, public health professional, I try to, when I do find articles that I think are very, are valid, I share those and try to promote those so that I can help do my part in spreading factual information or helpful information. So I think that's one thing. If you, if people do know someone or trust someone that does have a, a background in something like this, that it reach out to them, they're probably willing to help you parse through some of this information and, and make an educated um conclusion about what the, the information is telling you. You know, I think that's a really good point. Um, I know a lot of times when I talk to people about, you know, filing Freedom of Information Act requests, they think that it's something only journalists can do. But no, everybody has that ability as, as citizens of this country. And to the, to the same point that you're making, if you do have a question about something as a, as a regular person, reach out to an epidemiologist. I mean, it's not like they are inaccessible or only accessible to journalists you know, find a public health professional and reach out to them. I, I mean, you know, granted, they're probably super busy these days, but you never know. I mean, like I reached out to Erica. Erica, you're an epidemiologist. You got back to me. Um, prior to doing this podcast, I reached out to probably 25 epidemiologists all around the country to, to see what sort of things uh, we should be talking about um, when it comes to this pandemic and what sort of things we're getting wrong. And a lot of them got back to me. And so I think there is a general desire for uh, public health professionals to convey accurate information to the public. And so if you're a member of the public and you have questions, find one of them. You know, if you see them on TV, uh, write her name down and, and Google her name and, and give her an email and see if she responds. And if she doesn't, find somebody else. You know, I, I feel like certainly you don't want to overwhelm them with, 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 with silly questions. But, you know, if there's something you're really concerned about, I, I feel like, you know, reach out to somebody. So I, I think we've, we've covered a lot. I mean, do you guys have any sort of parting thoughts for people, for listeners who are either apprehensive about the world, which is probably all of us, or, you know, for journalists generally, um, or for people who are reading news, like any sort of parting final thoughts? Um, Laura, I'll go to you first. The number one thing that I will say is take care of yourself. You know, do what you can to reduce your risk. So wash your hands, <laughs> uh, don't touch your face, stay at home as much as you can, uh, limit your exposure to as many people as possible. 
right? So, you know, one of my favorite visualizations right now is the series of matches on fire and one match pulls down and the fire stops, right? So the idea that truly every decision that you make that is maybe frustrating because you'd really like to go out and buy a can of pears as opposed to the can of peaches you have on your shelf, like eat the peaches, you know, you don't need to be that one match that continues to spread the fire. And beyond that, like listen to what your body is telling you. Uh, you may feel a call to move. So move. And maybe that means doing jumping jacks in your living room, or maybe you have the opportunity to go out to a backyard. Um, but whatever that is, like, listen to what it is that you need and respect that because we have to take care of ourselves in order to take care of each other. This is very much a put your mask on first kind of situation before you put your mask on your kids. So be compassionate to yourself and as feelings of frustration or anxiety come, acknowledge them as feelings that they are physical, physiological reactions to stress uh, they are not the truth. You know, you will get through this moment. So um, let them come and let them pass and acknowledge them for what they are feelings and natural reactions to a very not natural situation for us. Are you sure you're not a psychiatrist as well? I feel better already. Thank you, Laura. Laura is laughing. She has her microphone on mute. Anyway, Erica, what do you think? Parting thoughts for us? What do you think people should take away? Much the same message that um, Dr. Willis has. I, you know, wash your hands, stay home if you're able to, and take care of yourself. And that doesn't just mean feed yourself and exercise. That is very much the, the mental part of it, too. One thing that was told to me one time, it's very similar to what Laura just said, but have a feeling. And that, that's where it doesn't have to keep going. It's like you have a feeling, that's what it is. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to do something or that an action needs to come after it. So I feel anxious. I feel sad. That's okay. Like feel it. it it's okay. And, and the guilt about um, your situation being better than other people's, and that, that doesn't mean your feelings aren't valid. Like it's all relative. People are going through different variations of anxiety and stress and discomfort and trauma throughout this process. And just because yours is different doesn't mean it's any less important or valid. Very well said. I want to thank epidemiologist Erica Fowler for joining us and also uh, Laura Willis, a professor of health and strategic communication at Quinnipiac University. Thank you ladies both for joining us. I really appreciate your time. So this was our first episode of Isolated Together. Thank you all for listening. We're trying to produce at least two episodes a week. We're going to try to talk about as many different things as we can about this COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to try to give people an opportunity to reach out to us and express their questions, their concerns. So you can find us on Twitter at QU Podcasts, on Instagram at QU Podcasts, and you can also email us at QUPodcasts at QU.edu. And the website for our podcast is isolatedtogetherpodcast.org. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time.